we are going to look at John 17. Now, John 17 is, uh, I don't know how do you, you know, the, the word that comes to my mind is, a, is it's a tapestry, right? It's, it's not, you know, one, you know, just kind of one linear thought that's going through step by step by step. It's, it's John. He's recording the prayer of Jesus, and it is just these threads of these different themes weaved together. And, and the analogy that came to my mind, I actually want to play a video right now. I've got a, and you, you can click play now. Uh, I've got an app, um, yes, there you go, it's called Sky Guide. And you can look at the sky. And very beautiful, amazing app. And in there, you can have filters that you can look at the night sky from different filters. Right now, it's just visible light. Now, if you look right now in the video, I'm going to enable, there you go. You can look at the sky through ultraviolet, right? The ultraviolet filter. You can look through, I'm going to check something else. Uh, the x-ray that's being emitted by the different stars. And you could see, you could see the different aspects of the Milky Way when you're looking through the different lenses, right? There's some things that are invisible to us that you can see only through x-ray. There's some things you can only see with H-alpha. So, very beautiful app, and it's a way of just understanding and seeing God's infrared. That's how it looks, um, which is... James Webb actually uses infrared microwave. So these all these different waves, and there's these different filters of looking at the one same thing. That is the the universe, the Milky Way, the galaxy, right? Um, and the, the John 17 is like the Milky Way. It is so rich. It is beautiful. It is complex. And and what we're gonna do today is we're just gonna look at it from three different themes. You could say it's broken into three different parts, but in each of the parts, Jesus still has the same themes kind of interwoven into it. So we'll break it out theme by theme. But now let's read God's word together, open it up to John 17, and we're going to be going into John 17. So just have it open on your phones and your physical Bibles, and we'll be reading it together. John 17, when Jesus had spoken these words, He lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, and to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. And now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world But they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, 
that they may become one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Let's stand and pray. Lord Jesus, as we open up your word, God, as we, as we look at your prayer, right before you left this world, right before you suffered the agonies of Calvary, I pray that we would see you, we would see the Father, that we would know you as a result of opening up your word right now. Please help us, God. Break through the noise, God. Break through the numbness. Break through, God, the, 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 all the different thoughts that we have in our hearts and all the worries, Lord, all the distractions, Lord. I pray that we would hear your voice speaking to our souls. Lord, we need you and your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. First of all, the first theme I want to look at in this chapter is the theme of the relationship between the father and the son. Let's go to the next slide. And, and just so you know, this chapter is very unique because it is actually the longest recorded prayer that we have of Jesus. Did you know that? It's the longest recorded prayer. And, and it is, it's, it's like Jesus allows us to have a peek into the relationship between the Father and the Son. It's, it's like this very special and intimate moment that the Father and Son have. And, and it's like he kind of lifts the veil and he lets us glance into the love that they have for one another. He's giving this to us. It's very close up. It's very personal. So the first thing that we see when it comes to the Father and the Son, is that each are glorified in one another. Verse 1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. The, verse 2, Father, the Father has given authority to the Son over all flesh. Verse 4, the Son has glorified the Father while on earth. He accomplished the mission that the Father gave him to do. Verse 5, Jesus asks for the Father to now glorify him. In verse 23, the Son actually has received, we read, glory before the foundation of the world. We've been talking a lot about that Jesus is God. He's not just, he's not just another prophet or an angel, but he is God. This is another proof that Jesus is God. Because Jesus had glory before anything had ever even existed. Jesus is God. So we see that they're constantly outdoing one another in glorifying one another. Two, we see the next point. They are united. Verse 11, even as we are one, 
Verse 21, you, Father, are in me and I in you. Verse 22, even as we are one. So they are so knit together that Jesus says, even as we are one. And lastly, see love, verse 24 and verse 23, that you sent me and you loved me. Verse 24, the Son has been loved by the Father before the foundation of the world In other words, the love that the Father has for the Son is eternal, church. It is eternal. It did not begin in a point. In verse 26, again, we see that the Father loved the Son. In summary, what we see here is that the relationship between the Father and the Son is an extremely special relationship, right? They are seeking to glorify one another. They share a unity that makes them one. And lastly, we see that the Father has an infinite love for one another, Now, this is a very important foundation that Jesus kind of, you could say, lays in the beginning of his prayer because he's going to build on top of it. And without that, the rest of the prayer doesn't really make sense. So just just remember, the glory that they're glorifying each other with, the unity that they have, that they are one, and the, the infinite love that they share with one another. And again, remember, this prayer is a prayer that Jesus prayed in front of his disciples. He knew his disciples were listening. By the way, this is not the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is a prayer before. This is a prayer at the Last Supper. Because we read in 18, they says they went up and after that they went into the garden. So Jesus is praying this out loud in front of his disciples, and he, he, he's communicating to us as much as he is communicating to the Father. So first theme is the Father and the Son. The next theme is us and God. And the main point, if we can go to the next slide, the main point here is that we are caught up into the love and the unity of the Trinity. This is amazing. This is a truly a mystery, church. Not all, through Jesus, you realize God doesn't just like not destroy us. Like, I'm not going to destroy you for all your sin, right? And that's enough. That's not what the gospel says. The gospel doesn't even say that God not only doesn't destroy us, but he also lets us come into heaven. But make sure to stay in the back row so I don't see you. That's not the gospel. The gospel doesn't even say that God welcomes us into heaven and, you know, he's, yeah, he's happy that we're there with him even though we sin against him. That's not, that's not the full part. The gospel is that we as sinners who don't deserve God's grace, we are caught up into the love of the Trinity through Christ, we enter the most holies of holies, you could say. The most sacred space in the universe. I'm not talking about physical space, but the space between the Father and the Son. We are there through Christ. And we are in that love and we are in that unity. There is no place more sacred, more special than the space and the love between the Father and the Son. Let me show you this in John. I'm not making this up. First of all, we belong to God. We see that there. Verse 2, Jesus prays, Since you have given him, that's Jesus, authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. He's talking about believers, that the Father gave to Jesus the believers. Verse 6, yours they were, and you gave them to me. This is fascinating. Just think about this. The Father had a people, and he is giving them, and he gave them to the Son. 
almost like this precious present. You know what passage comes to my mind when I think of this? The father giving the son people? Genesis 2.22. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and get this, and he brought her to the man. I think this is why we actually have fathers now take their daughters, the bride, and walk them down the aisle and give the bride now to the groom. That's what it is. It's, a, it's an image of God doing that. And so what we see here in the prayer, what Jesus is saying is, yours they were. They belong to you. They're your people. You love them, and you gave them to me as a precious present, as a bride. Church, that's us. We have been loved by the Father, and we have been gifted by the Father to the Son because we are his bride. And because we are loved, what we see here, sorry, because we belong to God, we are loved. Verse 23, you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. This is probably one of the most shocking verses in the entire Bible. Church, just, I'm sure you've heard it before, but think about this. You sent me, Jesus prays to the Father, and you loved them, that's us, even as you loved me. That means the way that the Father has loved the Son, in the same way, even as, in the same way, He also loves us. And it's just, I, I'm saying this, I'm preaching, and I still, I feel like I can't grasp my mind around that. It's like trying to hug the entire earth, right? You, you can't. It's just too big. Church, we are Christ's bride who was given to the Son by the Father. And the Father loves the bride of the groom, the bride of his Son, as much as he loves his Son. This is what the Bible is teaching us. Can you believe that? And it's not like the father's like begrudging, oh, I don't like the girl he married. No, he loves both of us the same. And, and it makes sense, right? Because biblically, we know that a husband and wife, they are what? One what, church? One flesh. We're one flesh. Do you know that the Bible says that we're one flesh with Christ? Because the Bible calls us the body of Christ. We are literally one flesh with Jesus. And the word of God also says that we are one spirit with the Lord. So we are united with him. And so it makes sense that the father loves us as he loves the son because he loves his whole son. He loves the head who is Christ and the rest of his body who is us. And so we are caught up into the love of the infinite trinity. I just want to ask everybody sitting here. Have you realized the depth of God's love for you? Like, has this fact, this idea that God has loved you, that God has loved me, with an infinite, with a bottomless love, has that sunk down into the deepest parts of your heart? Has it permeated all of your thoughts and emotions? Has it entered every room of your heart? In Christ, we are infinitely loved, 
through and through, every single fiber of our being. Truly, God's love is deeper than any ocean. Truly, His love is more expansive than this entire universe, edge to edge. I'm not talking about galaxy, I'm talking about universe. So the reason why that first part of his prayer, that relationship between the Father and the Son, was such the important foundation is because it leads up and explains where we fit into the picture. We are caught up into the love of God. And I want to ask everyone here today, have you come to know this love for yourself personally? I'm not saying for people in general, but for you as a soul, as an individual, just you alone with God, have you come to know this love? Has it shaped your image? Has it shaped your, your self-image and your identity of how you see yourself? Is that first and foremost in your heart and in your mind? Because this infinite love of God has very far-reaching implications. Our worth is now no longer found in, in who we are, in, in, in what we do, in what job we work at, and what we accomplish, right? Who we are in the social structure, what we have, our possessions, our accomplishments. That's not our worth anymore. That's not our identity. That's not at the center, Right? Our worth is completely and utterly based on the one who has loved me infinitely. That's where my worth is now. The only one that matters in this entire universe has loved me with an infinite love. I don't even need to prove my own self-worth to myself. Not even speaking of other people. I don't need to prove anything to anyone because I am loved infinitely. Also, because we are loved infinitely, I can now love others because I have received the love of God. It's really hard to do something when you don't have an example of how to do it, right? If someone just says, be better, right? Like, what does that mean? But in God, we find the infinite love of God. And that's why 1 John 4, 19 says we love, why do we love church? Because he loved us first. Now I don't need to prove myself to others. Because I don't need to prove myself to others, you know what that does? That frees us. That frees the chains of being enslaved to other people's opinions, other people's approvals. I don't need to prove anything. Now all I need to do is love other people. That's it. Instead of making it all about me and proving it myself, right? We think we're proving it to other people, but it's all about actually me proving it to myself to them. Now I don't need to prove myself, and now I could just go and just simply love other people. I can serve other people. I can give myself away because God has given me everything. The third point, because we belong, we are kept safe. Verse 11, Holy Father, keep them in your name. Verse 12, when I was, while I was with them, I kept them. Verse 15, keep them from the evil one. Jesus had kept his disciples safe. And now he's, as he's leaving, as he's handing them off, you could say, he's pleading with the Father to also do the same, to keep them safe. 
And believe me, church, we are his prized possession. And no one will be able to steal us from God. This is what the Gospel of John is, is, talks about so often. John 10, 28, Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. Than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. They are one. They have one purpose. They have one goal. To keep those who are their own. And no one will ever snatch them from the mighty hand of God. For he is greater than all. Church, you can rest in that. That's a promise you can take to the bank. 1 Peter 2, 9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. We are the prized possession of God. Church, rejoice in that. You might not feel like a prized possession. You might feel like you are barely worthy to be sitting in this room. But that's a lie from the devil. The gospel says, the word of God declares today, now to you, that if you've trusted in Christ, then you are his prized possession. Rest in the assurance that you belong to him, and God takes his personal possessions very seriously. Fourth, because we belong, the love and the unity of the Trinity becomes our standard of love and unity amongst one another and towards other people. Meaning, verse 11, Jesus prays, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. He's saying, because we're one, I want them to be one. Verse 22, the glory that you'd given me, I have given to them, that they may become one, even as we are one. Verse 26, I have made known to them your name and will continue to make it known that the love with which you loved me may be in them. Jesus desires that we be one and that we love one another. Why? Because he wants us to reflect the unity and the love found in the Trinity. And we, as image bearers of God, and more than that, as Christians, we are image bearers of Christ, of the Trinity. We, now our standard of love and unity is the, is the Trinity's love and unity. Now, what this means is that the love and the unity of the Trinity that we see here, it is not meant to stay as just some sort of theoretical facts in our mind. Oh, wow, yeah, Jesus and the Father, they really love each other, so united. Cool. No, no. That has to be here in the depths of our heart because now that becomes my standard, Peter's standard of how much I ought to love all of you and others and the unity we ought to have. And you might be thinking, well, so we're so far from that. Yes, we are. And has anyone ever accomplished it? I doubt it. And anyone that says they have, I doubt them even more. But that doesn't mean we never stop striving. Always 
By faith, not by our own good deeds, not by our own goodness, but by faith and the strength of Christ, we strive to love and to be united perfectly. Church, here's some practical application for all of us. I know this applies to all of us. Who are the people in your life that are hard to love? I want you to think about those people. The ones that are difficult to love. Maybe it's someone that's actually getting under your skin. Someone you're annoyed with. Maybe someone you don't like or maybe something stronger. Maybe it's someone you actually hate. How can we, a people who are so infinitely loved by God through and through, be brought into the love of the Trinity, into the unity of the Trinity, how can we, these people who are his prized possession, how can we not love other people? How can we not strive for peace with other people? How can we not do everything that is possible from my side to love every single person? Because I've been, I've been, I've been soaked through and through every cell in my body by the love of God. The Trinity is not just a theory, church. It's not a theory. It's not just some doctrine that some smart Christian guys write about in history. No, it is us, our prime example of love and unity. And that is the standard that we must always pursue. Church, may God fill our hearts with the love and the unity of the Trinity so that we may be able to turn around and pour it out upon other people, whether they love us back or not. There is no greater thing to learn, church. There is no greater commandment to obey than to love others after we love God. So help us, God. Amen? Fifth, because we belong we will see the glory of Christ. Because we are his bride, because we are loved by the Father, as the Father loves the Son, Jesus will one day unveil the single most desirable experience for any human soul ever. You see, God created us with a clear ability to appreciate and to crave and to desire glory. Or another word for that, beauty. God created us with that ability. Last time I checked, animals don't have museums and, and art, art galleries that they go to and they, you know, with little top hats looking at the beautiful art that they created. They don't have that. They can't, right? And yeah, oh yeah, elephants paint. Okay, uh, okay, yeah, sure. They can't understand beauty the way we can because we're made in the image of God. All of God's creation, original creation, is very beautiful. It is glorious. Church, just, just look at nature. Look at the stars that we just looked at, right? The, the, the awe-inspiring night sky. Every sunrise and sunset as I'm driving to work, right? It's, it's just another Wednesday. It's another Monday, and it is glorious. It's a glorious Monday, right? The waterfalls, the lakes, the mountains, the flowers, the Grand Canyon. Good tasting food is beauty to the tongue. Music is beautiful to the ear. People made in the image of God are beautiful. And not just physically, 
but also internally. People's personalities are beautiful, who they are. The relationships that we form with one another, the friendships we have, they are beautiful. Jesus Christ, as the creator of all these things that we just said and more that we have yet to discover, he is the master architect. And everything is just a small little reflection of him and who he is. He is the creative super genius behind all that is beautiful. It's, it's just little rays, little glimmers of who he actually is. And he possesses a glory that surpasses all other beauty that we can even dream of. Church is true. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. Why does he want that? To see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Church, Jesus knows how awesome his glory is. And as our groom, as the one who loved us so much that he gave himself up for us, he desires that we would be with him to see his glory, to see his infinite beauty. That's the desire of his heart. The harmony which will captivate every single soul that ever looks at him. That's the glory of Jesus. And church, I promise you, None of us will ever want to look away once we finally step into that city and we see him for the first time. <laughs> because there's nothing else worth looking at. I don't care what else is happening around me. I've got the most glorious being in all of existence right here in front of my eyes. And we will see him forever and ever. And you know, I think this is why actually the book of Revelation, which was actually written by God, Apostle John says that the new Jerusalem will be made of gold, but it will be clear. Revelation 21.10, and he, that's an angel, showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Hmm, okay. Revelation 21, verse 18, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. Wait, was it gold or was it glass? It was precious, but it was precious because it was clear. Because that means no matter where I am in the city of God, I will never have an obstructed view of the most glorious one, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, the lamp of the glory of God. There will be nothing that will ever hide his face from me seeing him. That is the preciousness of the material that the city is built from. No matter where I am, I will always see him in the fullness of his glory. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying we're going to just come to heaven and just stare for all of eternity. We will do things. We will worship him. We will praise him. We will live for him. But we will always see him in the fullness of his glory. And we will live all of life literally in the light of the glory of God. Just like when we walk outside, we see everything in the light of the sun. And there we will see all things in the light of the glory of Jesus. And we will never grow tired or bored. Because his glory 
is infinite in duration and his glory is infinite in variety because he is infinite. Church, we have so much to rejoice in. And here's the question for me. Here's the question for you right now. Do we desire to be with Jesus to see his glory? Do we actually desire that in our hearts? Because he's up there, he's waiting for us. You know what he said on the same night that he prayed this prayer? We read in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus says, verse 26, 29, they, they, they take the Last Supper, they drink of the wine, and then Jesus gives this, this promise. He says, I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in the Father's kingdom. He's waiting for us. It's not like Jesus comes to heaven, oh, oh that was hard, that place is stinky, dirty. Hey, Father, pour me a drink. Let's rejoice. I did a lot of hard work. Let's, let's relax. No. He is up there, and he's saying, I will not partake in the cup of the vine again until my beloved is with me at the wedding feast. That's where I will finally enjoy myself with my love. Church, he is waiting for us. Are we waiting for him? Do we desire to be with him as he is desiring to be with us? He longs to be with us. Or are we like a bride who's completely forgotten about her wedding day? She doesn't even remember when it is. She's, she barely even remembers who she's going to get married to. Are we like that bride? Have we abandoned our first love? If so, Jesus calls us to repent. Repent and seek his face and there is hope and there is forgiveness and there is restoration in Christ. And the last theme of John 17, so it's the Father and the Son, God and us, and the last one is the world. The first thing is that we do not belong in this world. Verse 16 says, they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. This is critical, church. We do not belong here. We don't. Hebrews 11 verse 13 calls the people of faith, which we're a part of, it says that we are strangers and exiles, meaning we don't fit in. We don't belong. This is not our home. And church, we need to hear this today as much as ever. Because in America, our big spiritual problem, it's not persecution. Oh, they said some bad things about me on Instagram because I'm a Christian. It is not persecution. The big spiritual danger and problem of today, it's comfort. It's comfort. It's loving this world. It's the American dream. It's making this life, this world, my home, this, making that my everything. That's the big spiritual danger for each and every single one of us living here. This world is not our home. It is a place of temporary residence. And we all agree and we all understand, yes, I'm going to die. I'm going to leave everything behind. We all know that. And yet we don't live that way. We live as if we're going to stay here forever or at least a couple of thousand years. And I'm, I'm just speaking about myself. We build our entire lives around the idea that we will keep on living and living and living. I remember I was talking to my friend 
And we're talking about like, you know, renting versus owning and, you know, like what, what makes the most sense financially. And he, I, I can't prove this, but he said there's some study that was done. And he said that the, the most financially profitable way to live, like if you want to maximize like the, you know, your living arrangement is it's actually, you know, everyone says buy a house, right? Because then you, then you live there and you're paying off your own mortgage and then you can sell it. Well, Apparently, the best way, the most financially profitable way to live is to do both. It's to buy a house and to rent, to live in rent. And you're like, how does that make any sense? Well, when you own a house, when you own a house, you want to make it your own, don't you, right? Like, ooh, I want this to be comfortable. You know, I want better lighting. I want my kitchen to look nice. And I'm not, I'm not saying anything bad about upgrading your kitchen or anything like that. But as any homeowner will tell you who has ever sold their house, you know, you invest, uh, one of my friends I was talking to, you know, we spent 10 years making it our own, like making it nice, this, this, that we shaped it perfectly, and then we sold it and we move into this house, and you're like, all that work we put into it was for nothing. And the reality is, is all these upgrades that we put into the house for myself, for my comfort, again, I'm not, I'm not speaking bad about, and that's... God will give all of us wisdom in that. So don't mishear what I'm saying. But all those upgrades that we make to make ourselves comfortable, as, as any homeowner that's sold their first house before, you know that that wasn't really that profitable, right? It didn't really bring you your money back. In fact, uh, one preacher said the story. They, he spent months creating this white picket fence for his, you know, his wife asked him. And so he made a nice white picket fence up front. And then their family got larger. And so they had to move. And he spent a lot of his free time. And then they, So they had to move across the street into a bigger house. They move into that house. And two days later, he sees the new company just destroyed the white picket fence. And just, just, just little splinters everywhere. Why am I saying this? Because when you're renting, you think differently. You, you don't think, oh, this is my home. I'm not going I'm, I'm to invest into this because I'm renting. I, this is, I'm going I'm to leave this place soon, right? Whether I, whether I find a better place or they kick me out, I'm, I'm not going to invest into this because this isn't my actual home. And that's why it's actually more profitable to live and rent while owning so the Bible reminds us that this world is not our home. We're renting. Church, we're all renters. We are strangers. We are exiles. And we're going to get evicted very soon. And it will happen suddenly and shortly. And then, then we will be home our eternal home, the place we will never leave. And we can invest into that for all of eternity because we will be there with the one whom our soul loves. Church, do not let the, and I say this first and foremost to myself, do not let the lure of the American dream lull us into cozy, deep sleep. Because one day the trumpet will sound and if we fall asleep, it, we will be shocked, not in a good way. In fact, Jesus, he wants us to protect us from that. He wants to protect us from the world. And so he prays, verse 11, Holy Father, keep them in your name. But 
that doesn't mean that he now wants to, oh, the world is dangerous, so let's just take him out. He doesn't do that. Verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. This is very strange if you think about it, right? We are not of the world. The world hates us. The world hates Jesus. Jesus wants to protect us from the world, but he doesn't want to take us out of the world. It just seems like, Jesus, come on, just take us out already. Like, they hate us. It's dangerous. Take us out. Why would he want us to stay? In fact, we've already read that Jesus prays in verse 18, I have sent them into the world. So Jesus actually sends us into the world, like one better, right? It's dangerous. They hate you. Oh, and I'm going to send you into the world. But Jesus, the world is dangerous. But Jesus, this world's not our home. They hate us. Why are you sending us? Why? How? Well, if we read the first half of verse 18, we see Jesus prays, as you sent me to the Father into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Jesus sends us just as the Father had sent him. Why? Verse 21, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. That's the answer. Verse 23, so that the world may know that you have sent me. As I call the band up, church, we need to remember that in God's mind and in his plan, it's not sufficient by the wisdom of God for us to get saved and then quickly transported up to heaven right away. God is sending us into the world on mission. To those who hate us, to those who hate Jesus, in order that more may believe. That's why every single one of us are still here. You realize that? The reason you're, if you have trusted in Jesus and you are not in the presence of Jesus in heaven is because God still wants to do his mission through each and every single one of us. Every Christian is a missionary in one form or another. We have been sent into this world. God's heart is so that more can know him. And here, specifically, if we study John, the world comes to know Jesus when we love one another and we are united. That's why verse 23 says, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Why? Why should we become perfectly one? Why should we love one another, church? So that the world may know that you have sent me. People see the love and the unity that we share and that we have for other people here at work, when we go grocery shopping, they see and they look at that and they say, something's different. Something otherworldly is going on here. We are called to love one another and be united. To help the world know that Jesus was sent in this world to save people. God wants this world to come to know him and his son. God does not desire the death of sinners, the word reminds us. He loved this world so much that he sent his only begotten son to die for us. And now that we are saved, 
Now that this world is not my home, we are called to stay here, to go into the world and bring the light of love to others so that others may come to know him as we have come to know him. I want to ask a question. Are people seeing God's love and light through my life, through the way that I treat other people? Are people seeing that through me? So, recapping. What do we learn from Christ's longest prayer today? First, that we are, we learned about the love and the unity of the Trinity. And Christ has come. He has revealed the Father to us. We have been saved and we are caught up into the infinite love of God. I'm infinitely loved. I don't need to prove anything to anyone. I am now just free to love other people. And that Christ is waiting for us in heaven. And he has a glory that he can't wait to show us. Are we living that way? Are we desiring to be with him because we belong to him? And lastly, we are reminded that this world is not our home, but we are sent into it so that others may come to know Christ. Amen? Let's stand and let's just have a minute of prayer. Lord Jesus, we come before you, Lord, and I understand that we, we can't even grasp your love, your infinite mercy, the Father's love for us, we can't, Lord. That's why Apostle Paul prays for the Ephesians that they would have the ability to comprehend the depth of the love of God. Help us, Lord, we pray. Help us know a little more about your infinite bottomless love. Help us long to be with you, to see you, to truly love you in our heart of hearts. And Lord, help us be a light as we go out into the world. Those who haven't come to know the gospel, haven't been set free from sin, those who are just living in bondage, in depression, in death, Lord, self-destruction. Use us, Lord, for your glory. Help us. We can't do it on our own. We pray this in your name. Holy Jesus, amen.